All right. Morning, everybody. I'll go ahead and get started here this morning. How's everyone this morning? Oh, quiet. Ooh, everybody's quiet. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> uh, first of all, I just want to thank everybody for the, the birthday wishes. Lots of uh, cards and, and uh, Facebook posts and, uh, you know, people emailing me or texting me. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate that, and uh, nice, to, nice to be remembered. Yeah, half the time, I don't really remember it, so I'm not so sure it's really good. Maybe I'd be better off to forget it if you, you, know, if you guys would all just forget it, but, uh, but I appreciate the kindness, so thank you. Let's open with a word of prayer here, and then we're going to get started on uh, the doctrine of Christ today. We're going to talk about uh, Christology, uh, first part of, of the study of Christology. So let's uh, open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We just thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the opportunity to be here together. Uh, Lord, we just pray for your blessing upon this class and on all the other classes that are meeting right now. We just pray that they would, uh, they would go well and uh, that you would be glorified with everything we do. And we uh, also ask for your blessing upon the service to follow, that again, Father, that you would be glorified and, and that you would be pleased with what we do here. And we just ask this in your name. Amen. All right. Doctrine of Christ, uh, or Christology, as it's often called. Uh, this is, is obviously the doctrine about Jesus. Um, now, many this is in, an enormously important doctrine, as you can you know rightly imagine, um, and it's it's also one that's been hotly debated and argued about through the years. It was uh, this doctrine was one of the first that that was really truly debated in the church. There was a lot of the early uh, heresies that kind of rose up that the church had to answer uh, were a part of the doctrine of Christ. They revolved around uh, trying to understand exactly who Jesus is. Uh, and we'll talk about some of those things. Now, there's a lot to cover. This is going to take you know at least two weeks to do this. There's a lot to cover in the doctrine of Christ. Uh, some things were we're not about Jesus that we're not going to talk about in Christology because they get covered in other things, like the return of Christ we will talk about when we talk about end times things. Um, we've already talked a little bit about kind of establishing the deity of Christ. Now, we will talk more about that because that's an important discussion when talking about the two natures of Christ. So we'll talk more about the deity, but we have covered some of that already. Um, it's, it, you know, there's, there's what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, again, we'll talk a little bit about his death and resurrection, but the real meaning of that we will discuss under the doctrine of salvation. So there are certain things about the doctrine of Christ that kind of get discussed in other places. So what we are going to try to cover in, in the, at least two weeks, possibly three, is we're going to talk a little bit about the history of Christology. Because it's important to understand this because a lot of the mistakes that have been made through the years, uh, they were made early on in, in, you know, in the church, and the church had to answer those, like I said, but some of them continue to this day and are carried out in, in you know, different groups to this day, you know, have kind of forms of these early heresies. And so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at that. Uh, and, and it's important to kind of understand how to think properly about the doctrine of, of, of Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk about his pre-incarnate state. You know, who was Christ before he was born as the, as the, the person Jesus? So we'll talk about that. Um, we'll talk about the incarnation, which means in the flesh, uh, Christ coming in the flesh and, and the virgin birth. We'll talk about those two things. Uh, we'll talk about what's called the kenosis, which literally means the emptying of Christ. And, and those, that's probably going to be what we're going to try to hit today, if we can get all that done today. If we can get all that done today, I'll be very happy. Um, you know, and, and then we'll talk about the, the humanity and the deity of Christ, the, the fact that he, you know, it's orthodox belief that he has two complete natures, a complete 100% human nature and a complete 100% nature as God, okay? And so we'll talk about, about that. Um, we're going to talk about his impeccability, which is his sinlessness and, and his sinless life and the miracles that he performed. 
And as I mentioned, we'll talk about his death and his resurrection, uh, and we will talk about his ascent back to heaven and his present ministry uh, at the right hand of the Father. So there's a lot to discuss when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, okay? A lot to cover, uh, and, and so we'll, we'll cover as much as we, as we can um, here today. First thing I want to start with is a bit of discussion about the development of Christology, uh, of the doctrine of Christ. As I mentioned, this is one of the earliest debated doctrines because it's hard to understand. You know, the, the whole idea of God becoming a human being, of God who is transcendent, and as we, we've talked about all that, how he transcends his creation, but yet somehow God entered into his creation and became a human being. Well, how, how in the world could that happen? It is, you know, we talk so much about the mystery of things like the Trinity, you know, and how difficult that is to understand, how difficult the virgin birth is to understand. But, you know, in the mind of, of, of virtually every, you know, theologian and philosopher that I've ever read in, in, when it comes to the Bible, they all say the most difficult thing to grasp is the incarnation of how God came in the flesh. And to, you know, we'll never completely grasp it. It's a little bit like what we said about the Trinity. You know, you have to believe it because the Bible clearly teaches it. If you try to understand it, you'll lose your mind. If you try to deny it, you'll lose your soul. Well, the incarnation is the same type of thing. We'll never completely understand it, but we do have to learn to speak correctly about how the Bible teaches it. And the church struggled with that mightily in the early years of the church. You know, and, and, and we'll, like I said, if we have time at the end of today, if not maybe the beginning of next week, we'll talk about some of these, uh, some of these heresies that, that, you know, came about uh, in, in this. Because oftentimes some heresies would tend to undermine the deity of Christ and, and, and overemphasize his humanity uh, or, or just completely deny the deity of Christ. Uh, the Ebionism, uh, you know, the Ebionites were a group of, of early Jewish believers who in reality were not believers because they denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Probably grew out of what was happening in Galatians where you see Paul, that he wrote the letter to the church in Galatia uh, in order to combat the Judaizers who were basically trying to say, hey, in order to really be a believer in Christ, you have to basically become Jewish and adopt the, the, you know, the, the Jewish practices. And Paul was fighting against that in, in, in the book of Galatians. Well, the Abionites probably grew out of, of that. You know? and, and so some would do that. Others would go the other direction, and they would uh, you know, overemphasize the deity of Christ and underemphasize his humanity. And some things like docetism you know, would, would basically try to, you know, almost get rid of the humanity of Jesus Christ. That there's no way, you know, it's very similar to Gnosticism. And some things Glenn has actually talked about here uh, in, in Second Peter and, and the, the, you know, the, the heresies in the, the, that Second Peter is addressed to, that, that Peter is trying to fight. That's one of the things that we don't always understand as we read the Bible. The, most of the New Testament is a set of letters, that was written by the apostles and, and, you know, disciples of the apostles to the churches. And a lot of them are dealing with, with heresies, at least in part, you know, because there was many false teachings that started to come up during that time. So Christology is enormously important, has always been important, and it was probably the first thing that the church had to really step up and defend in the early years of the church. And for the, really for the, for the first Oh, up through like the, the 400s, there were huge, huge fights in, in, within the church over just who Jesus is. So, you know, we're going to take our time with this. Um, like I said, we're going to take two, maybe three weeks, depending on how much we can get done, to, to handle this discussion of who Jesus is. As far as the history of, uh, you know, of Christology and the development of Christology, what I want to say here today, like I said, we'll talk about some of the early uh, heresies, uh, you know, either at the end of the class today or, or next week when we talk about the two different natures of Christ, because that's, that's where those things kind of come in for the most part. Um, 
But what I, w- I do want to say today is there's, there's been uh, an interesting, some interesting developments in how the church approaches uh, Christology through the years. In the beginning, in, in the early church, you know, the, the early church was kind of fighting these heresies, but while they were doing that, they were also formulating a lot of, of statements about who Jesus actually is, a lot of creeds that, that said this is who Jesus is. See, one of the things, and, and this, is, this might sound a bit strange, but heresy usually has a positive effect on the church in the end. Because it forces the thinkers of the church, the ones who, the theologians and stuff, to step up and basically say, whoa, put the brakes on. That's going too far. That's wrong. And what they do then is they formulate really the great teachings and creeds of the church. That's what we talk about the development or the progression of theology. That theology has progressed through the years because the church has been forced to deal with certain things, and when it's done that, they've come away with clearer statements about what the Bible teaches, okay? So, you know, that's the way things were in the early years of of the church. So you had these great early creeds, and what people believed about Christ generally is they believed whatever the, the historical teaching of their particular, you know, branch of Christianity believed, you know? The Catholics, the, you know, the Orthodox, the, the, the Eastern Orthodox, then once the, the Reformation came, the, you know, the Protestant denominations all had their particular statements on, on the deity of Christ. And, and all of these, by the way, largely agreed. Whether they were Catholic, whether they were Orthodox, or whether they were Protestant, most of them were in, in enormous agreement when it came to who Christ was. So things, you know, kind of were leveled out for a while. And then, falling on the heels of the Reformation came a lot of the wars that were fought for religion in Europe. Uh, You know, and and at the end of those wars where, I mean, things like the Thousand Years' War and all this, like there was tremendous amounts of fights between Protestants and Catholics— I know Protestants tend to think the Catholics did it all. Catholics tend to think the Protestants did it all. The reality is both of them were just about equally guilty, trying to persecute and kill one another, all in the name of God, which I don't think God made God happy at all, to be completely frank with you. Well, at the end of that, you had what's known as the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment looked at all of this, and they said, well, that must be nonsense, we can't believe in that. You know, we have to believe in, in the emerging things like science. And, and a lot of what we deal with today and the doubt about Christianity came about starting in the time of the Enlightenment. And a lot of it, by the way, was the church's own fault. Because we failed to follow what the Bible actually taught and tried to kill one another to enforce our beliefs on one another. And the answer to that by the rest of Europe was, well, we're not going to believe in that anymore. We're going to believe in these things. Well, you know, at, the, at the, the heels of the Enlightenment came what is called higher criticism, particularly amongst the German theologians, the German church, uh, and also the Swiss church, uh, largely amongst the Reformed churches, you know, came this idea of, of, of higher criticism. Now, what do we mean by criticism? There's two things that people think of when they think of criticism. They either think of, I'm criticizing somebody, I'm picking on them, I'm saying they're wrong, or they think of thinking critically. Criticism in itself is not a bad thing. It can be a good thing if it's just knowing how to critically think. All of us should be critical in our thinking about ourselves, more so than anything else. We should be able to look at ourselves and say, how do I believe, how do I live, and is that right? Am I right? Am I handling these things the correct way? We should be critical in the way we examine ourselves. We should be critical in the way we examine all the philosophies and the teachings of all the world around us. Take a critical approach. But we should not be critical people. We should not be the kind that are constantly criticizing others. There is a difference. Well, when we're talking about higher criticism or German higher criticism as it's often called, we are talking about a 
not just a very critical approach, but, but people that, who were very much criticizing the teachings of the church. The higher critics looked at the teachings of the church and they said, well, there's no way we can know exactly what happened in Jesus' life. We can't necessarily trust those gospels. They could have just been made up. And, you know, like I said, it came at the heels of the Enlightenment. So they're thinking now of things like science and, and, and you know, the, the, the coming of things like evolution. And so a lot of the higher critics looked at things and they said, well, the Bible's very supernatural. Jesus is doing all these miracles. Well, we have to throw all those out because we know those things can't happen. So they, they came at it with a very, uh, what is called a presupposition, which is when you come into an, a, a discussion or a study or an argument with a predetermined position. They had a presupposition that, that anything that was miraculous couldn't be true, so they were going to throw all those beliefs out. Well, what are you left with when you throw the miraculous out, especially when it comes to the doctrine of Jesus? Not much. That was German higher criticism. You know, they called it the quest to find the historic Jesus. And what they meant by that is let's throw out all of the, the, the miracles, all the supernatural stuff, and let's just look for who the man was. You know, and, and what little we can find out about that, that's who Jesus really was. Well, needless to say, German higher criticism completely tore apart the Christology of the church. Now, the interesting thing was they, they like to think of themselves as honest brokers. Well, we're just trying to take an honest look here and find out the honest truth. But as many uh, theologians have, made, have commented, it's funny how they ended up coming up with a picture of Christ that almost exactly was like them, that fit exactly what they wanted to believe and what exactly they wanted to teach. Isn't it funny how that worked? Well, that's not really funny because what else did you expect them to find? All they were doing is recreating Christ in, in their, you know, their image. Instead of us being the image of God, they were creating God in the image of man. So thankfully, there was a reaction to higher criticism. Uh, you know, this reaction to the, his, the, the search for the historic Jesus. People looked at this and they said, no, 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 that's not right. We have to answer that. Well, Unfortunately, the answers sometimes, they were better, but they weren't really complete either. People tended to lean one way or the other on how the answers were. Some of the answers said, we have to look at, at Christ and understand him through the teachings, the historic teachings of the church, okay? They agreed with the German higher critics that we can't really know anything about his life because we can't trust the history. So it's all, we're going to just base it all upon what the teaching of the church was. This was called the kerygma. That was the, the, the official teaching of the church. And this was all, also often called, uh, you know, Christology from above. Okay, they would look at it, uh, you know, hey, this is what the church has always taught. Those guys knew more about Jesus. They were closer to him. Uh, you know, they were his apostles. They, they were able to see this stuff. So we can't necessarily trust the histories of Jesus, but we can, we can trust what's come in the teaching of the church. Well, there's truth to that. We, you know, we can trust what's come in the teachings of the church, and those people were cr closer to Christ. But it denies the fact of, of all the things about Jesus as a real person that we can learn about when we read the Gospels. The fact that Jesus was a Jewish man. How does the fact that he was a Jewish man affect who he was and how he lived? The, the, the time period he lived and what was going on during that time period. See, they were basically throwing all that out and saying, well, we can't understand that, so we just got to go on like, like the creeds of the church. So that didn't really do it. It was better than the German higher critics, but it really didn't do it. Well, then others took the complete opposite approach. They basically said, no, we can't trust any of the, 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 the teachings of the church. Uh, you know, we have to, this has to be all rational thinking. We have to try our best to examine the history of Jesus and, and learn as much as we can about the history of Jesus, and that's how we formulate our Christology. Beyond that, we, we can't take anything that has to do with faith. See, one was trying to have faith without having reason and facts. The other one was trying to have facts and reason without having faith. 
And that's problematic because the Bible has both. You know, the Bible tells us we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. You know, we're to worship God in faith and in the spirit of, 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 of Christ, but we're also to worship him in truth and what the Bible actually teaches. And that's the better approach. That, that's approach that really goes the whole way back to, to Augustine. Uh, let me read something to you. This is from uh, Millard Erickson's Christian Theology. This is another book I will plug to you. Uh, you know, I, I said we, we'll use... Norman Geisler's Systematic Theology, a lot in this book, this study, and we have. We're also going to use Millard Erickson's Christian Theology quite a bit. Uh, and this is also, a, this is a real standard uh, Christian theology in, in a lot of the libraries of a lot of pastors. Uh, you know, this is, this is a tremendous theology. He writes this about this kind of, uh, this how, I don't know exactly how I would put it, but this view that uh, is not a view of Christ from above or below, but is a, uh, you know, a view kind of both, okay? Faith and reason. He says this, this there's another possible model, namely the Augustinian. In, in this model, faith proceeds but does not remain permanently independent of reason. Faith provides the perspective or starting point from which reason may function, enabling one to understand what otherwise could not be understood. When this model is applied to the construction of a Christology, the starting point is the kerygma, yeah, what I mentioned, which, which is the, the belief and preaching of, of the church about Christ. The content of, of the kerygma serves as the hypothesis to interpret and integrate the data supplied by inquiry into the historical Jesus. According to this position, the early church's interpretation of or faith in Christ enables us to make better sense of the historic phenomena, phenomena that does, uh, than does any other hypothesis. Our model entails following neither faith alone nor historic reason alone, but both together in an intertwined, mutually dependent, simultaneously progressing fashion. In other words, we have faith in Christ, and because we have faith in Christ, that helps us to then look at the data about Christ historically and understand who Jesus was. We can look at something like the fact that he was a Jewish man living in, in you know, the, the first century, and we can say, oh, okay, that's what that means. Here's what that means for his life, okay? So that, that, that's a much better understanding is, is, you know, these two things together. Now, I do want you to understand this, though, that this fight for Christology still goes on. I, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, uh, the, the, the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar was a, a group of New Testament scholars who were not believers in, in, that, in Jesus, not, not that he was uh, you know, truly the, the, the son of God, the, the, you know, that he was always the you know, pre-existent son of God. They didn't believe that. They essentially were the German higher critics all over again. Is really all the Jesus Seminar is. It's just you know a redo of of that whole mindset and still trying to fight that battle. We can't trust the scriptures. They say we can't believe that. So and they would you know they were so um, you talk about a group of of, of kind of self promoters. Uh, you know, it was actually a relatively small group of scholars, but they would write these papers to one another about, like, you know, different elements of, of Christology and different things about the Bible, and they would try to remove all the things from the Bible that were supernatural. Like I said, just like the, the, the German higher critics. And then they would come out with these academic papers, like I said, that they would, like, send to one another and write to one another, and then throw big press conferences. Oh, you know, man, World, world breaking, you know, news here from, from these great, you know, theologians, and they would come out with these things kind of knocking down the, you know, the, 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 who Jesus was. Well, thankfully, again, that was answered by a, a group of uh, really renowned biblical scholars, Jesus scholars, uh, people like Ben Witherington and Daryl Bach and, and people like that who came along and then wrote basically wrote treatises just ripping apart the Jesus Seminary. So in the end, within the Christian world, not that many people paid attention to the Jesus Seminary. The ones who wanted to believe what they, they were peddling, they believed it. Of course, the lost world, they, you know, that's already what they believe, so they, they're willing to believe it. 
But within the larger Christian world, not that many paid attention to them. But that's why it's important, because the fight still goes on. Jehovah's Witnesses is, is, is really just a modern form of an ancient heresy, okay? And we'll talk more about that next week. So, you know, I, I want to have this come across to us that when we are studying doctrine, do not think this is some kind of ivory-towered intellectual, you know, pursuit. It is not. This is still you know, rubber on the road Christianity. This is, this is still where it's at because the fight still goes on. And if you have a Jehovah's Witness show up at your house and wants to talk to you, uh, you know, you, and, and I, yeah, I've had this conversation with some of you through the years. It's like, wow, they're so hard to talk to. Like, they know what they believe, but, but they're not willing to listen to anything. Well, that's, yes, because they have a completely different Christology than what you do. Completely different. You know, and, and so if you want to arm yourself well, you better understand what you believe. Okay, that's why we're, why we're doing this class. So that's a little bit about the history of this. And like I said, we'll get more into that, um, you know, here possibly at the end of the class and certainly next week when we talk about the two different natures of Christ. Let's look at the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, you know, at, at, at the pre-existent Christ. Who was the eternal son of God before he became the man, Jesus Christ? See, Jesus began on that day that he was born in that manger in Bethlehem. But the son of God existed for eternity before that. It was on that day that the incarnation happened, when God became flesh. But who was, who was God before that? Who was Christ before that? Well, one, he is always the son, and, and he is always submissive. Let me read something to you from 1 John 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. Okay, that's what John, how John begins that letter. Whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Oh, they would have, yes. The, the, the heretics would have thrown all that out. But that's, again, that's why John is writing this letter. As, as Glenn has mentioned, you know, the letter, the second letter of Peter. I, I mean, it is a direct, like, you know, a kind of attack on false teaching. And much of the New Testament is. Because they were dealing with the early forms of these, of these heresies. You know, it didn't take long for Satan to start fighting when the church was formed. You know, I mean, he started fighting right off the bat. And so these early heresies were popping up. And so the, the, the apostles, as they you know, were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures, you know, many of them, be, you know, I mean, I, I just find that remarkable because he begins it. He doesn't, he doesn't even really have a prologue. He just steps right in and says, this is what I'm writing to you about. We, we got to get right down to business here. This is, this is what's, what, what I'm writing about, you know. And, and so, uh, as he mentioned, Jesus, before he became Jesus, was the eternal son of God who always existed. He was with the Father. He was eternal. He was always there. You know, and, and, and that, that is something that the church has, has always believed. John particularly wrote a lot about that, not just in 1 John, but he begins the gospel of John in exactly the same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was God, and the Word was with God. I, I mean, he, you know, John twice tackles this directly right off the bat, you know, and, and so uh, this, was, this was important in the early church. Let's uh, look over at John, to, to turn over to the gospel of John, John chapter 17, verse 5. 
These are all verses teaching about the pre-incarnate Christ, the, the, the pre-existence of Christ before he was born as Jesus. And this is, John quotes Jesus here. And we've talked about this before, you know, earlier, but, but I want to read it again because it's important because notice who, what Jesus says about himself. This is, you know, Jesus is praying at this point. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Now, there's Jesus' words himself as he's praying to the Father, obviously praying out loud, and the, the, you know, the apostles are hearing this, and he says, bring me into the glory that we shared, the glory I had with you before the world began, before there was anything, before the creation. See, Jesus says he was. He already existed. And notice that he says he had shared that glory with God. We read last week that, that the, 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 the Old Testament says that God would not share his glory with anyone. So the very fact that Jesus shared that shows that Jesus was God. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Father, you and I are one. Get, you know, bring me back into that glory that I shared with you before anything else was, was, was created. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. Still getting used to this Bible. You guys ever have that when you get a new Bible and everything kind of sticks together? Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For through him God created everything, speaking of Jesus. In fact, let me read 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. That, by the way, is speaking about, you know, the heavenly beings, demons, angels, things like that. Okay, you know, it says that, that Christ made those. Everything was, cre- that, well, everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. So again, here we see the Apostle Paul early in this letter to the, the church at Colossae basically saying this is who Jesus is. You guys get the idea that Christology is important. It's so many books of of the New Testament begin with statements like this. Statements on who Christ really is. And so we we see him being pre-incarnate here, existing before he became flesh. He has always been there. He's eternal. He is equal with God. I want to look at something else uh, because we do see visible uh, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament in the form of the angel of the Lord. I want to turn to Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Exodus 3, 1 through 6, and this is the burning bush. This is a you know, one of the most famous Old Testament passages, passage dealing with the burning bush. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He, he led the flock far, far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, uh, Sinai whew, can't talk this morning, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Now notice it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Okay? We don't usually think about that when we think about the burning bush, but the Bible says this was, an, was the angel of the Lord who appeared to, to, to Moses in that burning bush. Moses stared in amazement, which I always find is one of the great understatements in the Bible. Of, of course he did. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him. Now notice, it's God calling to him. It's the Lord that saw this. That word Lord there is Yahweh or Jehovah. 
That's the word, okay? The Lord saw him coming. God called to him, Moses, Moses, here am I, Moses replied. I tend to think after he woke up, because if I heard that bush yelling my name, I'd probably faint, okay? But, you know, I, I love the understated nature of this, you know, of, of this uh, particular piece of the Bible. It says, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. You guys get that? It begins by saying this is the angel of the Lord, and then from that point on, every reference is that this is God. What the vast majority of conservative uh, theologians believe is that the angel of the Lord was a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. It was the son of God before he was born as Jesus. That he took on some sort of a form. In this case, it was the form of fire in the midst of a bush. Okay? Let's look up one other one. Micah 5.2. Actually, this is dealing more with the significance of Bethlehem. But, uh, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, are, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. There again is the idea of, of the goings of Christ, of the Messiah, being in the distant past. You know, establishing the fact that he was doing things. He wasn't just sitting in heaven somewhere on like a recliner, you know, for, for eternity. I mean, that's sometimes how we kind of think of like, you know, God. Well, you know, before Christ came, there wasn't a whole lot going on there. Well, yes, there was. You know, and, and, and that's kind of what, he, you know, he's saying here. Uh, you know, he's talking about the significance of Bethlehem. It's a prophecy toward Beth- Bethlehem and the birth of, of the Messiah, the birth of Christ. But he noticed that in the midst of that, he says his, his doings, you know, were, were of, of ancient times or eternal, uh, you know, who, whose origins, this one says, are in the distant past. There's a lot of different ways that's translated, but basically, you know, he, the things he did, you know, the, the things that Christ was doing We've been writing about for a long time. His actions have, have been there uh, for, for a long time. So the Bible clearly talks about Christ being pre-incarnate. In the Old Testament, and there's a lot of other passages, especially like with, with appearances of the angel of the Lord that we could, we could look up, but we're not gonna take the time to do that today. But you know, as you can see, the teaching that Jesus was was you know, that the, the Son of God existed before Jesus was born is very clear in both the Old and New Testament. The Son is eternal. He, he is one of the, one of the uh, persons of the Godhead, as we established last week. He has always existed, and he even manifested himself at different times in the, the, the lives of the Jewish people, even before Judaism was formed. You know, he appeared to people. Appeared to Abraham was one of the ones we could look up. You know, and, and, and so we see this throughout the, the uh, Old Testament. So the Bible clearly establishes the pre-incarnate Christ, all right? Now let's talk about the incarnation. Incarnate literally means in the flesh. Uh, you know, when you ever... How, how many of you like Mexican food? Raise your hand. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Carne asada. You know what that means? Flesh, basically. That's, that's what it means. Uh, you know, carnitas, which is pork, but it basically means comes from flesh. Uh, it, it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a Latin-based language, and that idea uh, of in the flesh, carnate, flesh. 
So incarnation means Jesus in the flesh, that, that God became man. That's what it means. Now, the means of that, of course, was the virgin, we say the virgin birth, but technically it's the virgin conception of Christ. Uh, you know, the, the means of coming in the flesh was the virgin conception of Jesus Christ within the womb of Mary. Now, can I explain to you how all that happened? Uh-uh. I'm not even going to make an attempt. I can't. You know, it's miraculous. It's an act of God. As I mentioned earlier, that, that you know, the incarnation is, is the hardest, hardest thing for us to wrap our mind around. How could a transcendent, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent God take on human flesh? I mentioned uh, the, the other week uh, the, the late great atheist uh, philosopher uh, Anthony Flew. This was one of Flew's kind of argument. This is like the main sticking point for him coming to belief in God. How in the world, you know, could, could what you Christians teach about the incarnation, how could that ever happen? Interestingly, one of you know there were a couple things that kind of turned his mind, you know, in the end when he came to believe that there was a God. Uh, one was interestingly science, because as we got a, a further look out into space with some of the great you know advances of, of astronomy, and and it, we we realized just how fine tuned the universe was, fine tuned to a level that. Life wouldn't exist if you tr- changed just an iota of how fine-tuned the universe is. Flu was like, oh, man, there's pretty much got to be something that made this. And the other thing was, was the, the great uh, you know, British theologian, uh, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, uh, you know, an Anglican um, scholar, Church of England, uh, you know, who I guess he and Flu had a a conversation, and, and Wright was able to expose him to an understanding of the incarnation that helped Flu, you know, come to, an, to, you know, believe that, yes, this is possible. And like I said, I don't know if he came to faith in Jesus Christ. From everything I know, he didn't, but he did come to belief in a God. So this single thing is the most difficult thing for, for people to grasp, is the incarnation. Now, first, let's look at some verses that discuss the the virgin birth. Of course, the most famous, go to Isaiah chapter 7, prophecy of of the virgin birth, Isaiah 7, 14. says, all right, uh, all right, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God uh, is with us. We read that every year at Christmas time. And there's a reason that we do, because the New Testament then verifies that that was what happened in the birth of Christ was a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. In fact, I'm going to turn over to Matthew chapter 1. And read verses 21 through 23. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus literally you know literally means ba- you know basically save lord the lord saves it's actually the name joshua it, it's kind of the 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 greek version of the, of the name joshua so you know jesus would have never c- heard himself called jesus he would have heard himself called yeshua uh you know w- which was kind of you know th- that version of joshua but just think of how close yeshua and joshua are to one another and it'll give you the idea that's the same name okay um, and it basically means the Lord saves. 
Verse 22, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. And then he quotes, look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So literally, Emmanuel was not his name, it was, it was a title. Essentially, it, it meant that when he was born, that was God with us, the incarnation. Okay? You guys get the, get the point. The virgin birth was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, oftentimes people have said, but yeah, the, the Jews, though, that's not how they understood that verse. And you're right, they didn't. Most of them did not. They didn't understand it that way because they just couldn't wrap their minds around the concept of, of God coming in the flesh. But clearly, the church understood it that way. The Jewish believers who you know, comprised the early church understood it that way because it, you know, le- again, led by the Holy Spirit, what did they say? This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. Like, Isaiah 7.14 has been a hotly debated verse for centuries. Is this really talking about the Christ? To me, there's really not much debate because the New Testament says it is. And that's kind of the end of the debate right there. The early church, again, led by the Holy Spirit, said this is about Jesus. He was what that prophecy was about, okay? As far as I'm concerned, end the debate. So both the Old Testament taught the coming of one in the flesh of the, you know, through a virgin birth, and the New Testament verifies that that's what the Old Testament was talking about, and that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his birth. That he came in the flesh. He was God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God is with us. I want you to just think about that. Let that sink in. This is what you're going to call that child because that's what that child's going to be. When he comes, that will be God with us. You can't say that about any child that's ever been born before or will be born since. God with us. His name literally means the Lord saves. It assumes his deity, the Lord saves. Now, why virgin born? Well, there's several elements to the virgin birth that that are important. One, he is born without a sin nature. The Bible tells us that we are born in sin. And what that means, it doesn't mean we've actually committed a sin at our birth, It means that we were born with a nature to sin. It is not possible for anyone who is born with a sin nature to ever live a life and not sin. Not possible. That's basically what that means. You are born with a predisposition towards sin. And it's a predisposition so strong that you will sin before your life is over. No one can live a perfect life because your very nature is to sin. That's what the Bible says. So for Christ to come and be one of us, but yet still be a fitting sacrifice for our sins, to still be God, of course he can't sin. So the virgin birth is important because it is Jesus born in, you know, as a human, but without a sin nature. So it wasn't a human coupling of two human beings together who who brought Jesus into the world. It was a miraculous virgin conception. The closest we get to understanding it is what the Bible says, that the Holy Spirit would essentially come upon Mary and put Christ in her womb. That's as good as we get, folks. You know, it's something we we can't really grasp, but it is what the Bible teaches. Another thing, you know, since he is God, since he is God in the flesh, but yet also now a human being, he is a perfect human being. Since sin came upon the world, and the human race, and upon all of God's creation, no, human be- no perfect human being has existed until Christ. 
Adam and Eve were perfect, but not perfect in the same way as Christ. They were still creatures. Jesus is eternal God, the eternal Son of God. Where it was possible for Adam and Eve to sin because they were creatures. Even though they were created perfect, they were still creatures. They had the weakness of being created beings. It is not possible for Christ to sin. It's not possible for God to sin. The Bible is very clear in that. God cannot sin, nor can he tempt another to sin. That doesn't mean Christ couldn't be tempted because he was also flesh. His flesh felt the, the weaknesses of being hungry and tired and all those things, but he was God and he could not sin. If there's any chance that he could have sinned, then there's a chance that somehow God's plan for our salvation could have gone awry and, and, and the eternal Son of God could have somehow ceased to be God. That is not possible. That's called the impeccability of Christ. It is not possible for him to sin. God's plan was foolproof. So Jesus came as, you know, and became a perfect man. One of the important parts of, of the virgin birth. And because of these two things kind of put together, he becomes a satisfactory sacrifice or atonement. And again, we're not going to spend a lot of time in that today because we're going to talk about that. Uh, you know, most, mostly we'll talk about atonement when we get to the doctrine of salvation and, and exactly what Christ accomplished on the cross. But he became a perfect sacrifice for sins. Not just a perfect sacrifice for one sin. You know, there's that idea that, well, you know, I, I deserve to die for my sin. You know, and my death would, you know, would be a, a just punishment for my sin. And your death would be for your sin, and your death would be for your sin, and, and so, so on and so forth. But since he was God and man... A human being could die for all the sins that have ever been, been committed. That's why that's so important. So when the Bible says, you know, he's an acceptable sacrifice, the, the big word, the propitiation, he's an acceptable sacrifice, that's what it means. Jesus was enough because he was God and a human without a human sin nature, because he was that, he was enough of a sacrifice for all of us. His sacrifice satisfied God's justice. And we'll talk about this more next week, but God demonstrated his acceptance of that sacrifice, that his justice you know, you know, was, uh, was fully uh, satisfied by bringing Christ from the grave. The resurrection is proof of the acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's the importance of the virgin birth. Now, let me give you some of the reasons that the Bible says Christ came. Why did, why did this incarnation come? Well, I've already just said one, so we don't necessarily have to read this one. We'll save ourselves a little bit of time. But if you want to read this, look up Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Glenn just got done, you know, teaching the, the, the sermon series on Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10, and that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is explaining there. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Christ came to die for the sins of mankind. That's why he came. That's one of the reasons. That, I mean, we... Usually we stop right there because, I mean, from our perspective, that's reason enough, isn't it? We're pretty happy with that one. We're like, hey, cool. But you know, the Bible does say there's other reasons that he came. One I, I've, I've mentioned to you already as, as you know, throughout the, the, the course of, of this study and, and others is that he came to declare God. You know, he, he was God's declaration of himself. I want to look over at John chapter 1, and I want to look at verse 18. Oops. 
It says, no one has ever seen God but the unique one. And, you know, and I love kind of how the, the NLT puts that. I mean, you know, because in, in essence, that's kind of what it does mean. Uh, there's no one else like Christ. You know, the, the, the unique one who is himself God uh, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. That's essentially what, you know, it, that's saying. Is that Jesus came not just to die for our sins, though that is immensely important. He also came to be the revealer of God, the declaration of God. I always like to use this example. When the United States decided we wanted to be our own separate country, we just didn't get up one day and, oh, hey, now we're independent from Britain, because Britain wasn't going to like that. So what, what did the, 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 the early patriots do? Well, they made a declaration of their independence. They did that before they ever fired a, a shot. This is who we are. We are declaring this is who we are. That's what a declaration is. A declaration is a public statement of who we are, of what we are. So when, when God declared himself, he did it through Jesus. It's God saying to all of human, humanity, this is who I am. You wanted to know who God is? You wanted to see God because no one could see him, it says, at any time? That's what you want? Okay, here you go. This is God. One of the reasons Christ came. And the Bible says that in numerous places. John in particular talks about it. He came to provide an example. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to look at verse 21. 1 Peter 2.21, For God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is our example, and you must follow in his steps. You know, a lot of times we shy away from this one because this is kind of the liberal uh, viewpoint of why Christ came. They don't believe he came to die for our sins or anything like that. They just say, well, he was a good moral example. So a lot of times we don't talk about that, but you know, the Bible does say that. You know, he was a good moral example. And we as Christians are supposed to model him. You know, we, that's why we're called Christians. It means little Christ or imitator of Christ. We are supposed to imitate him in how we live our lives. And that's, that's what Peter's saying here. We're supposed to imitate Jesus. So he did come to be an example. That's just not all he came to be. You know, if that's all it was, then it's all kind of useless. But he came to die for us. He came to declare, declare God. And he also came to be an example for his children in how to live. I'm not going to take the time to, to, to read these others. I'm just going to give them to you because we're kind of running out of time. But he came to destroy the devil's works. 1 John 3.8, if you want to look that up and read that on your own. 1 John 3.8 Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to be a merciful, merciful high priest. Again, go back to the Hebrews series. Hebrews 5, verses 1 and 2. Jesus came to be a merciful high priest. In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, he came to fulfill the Davidic covenant. The covenant that God made to David Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant. So the why of the incarnation is more than what we often think. Yes, he came as an acceptable sacrifice for our sins, but he also came to declare God and to defeat Satan and to be our, uh, our example of how to live and to be a merciful high priest and to fulfill the Davidic covenant. He came for all of those reasons. Now, I want to get started on this, so let me mention this briefly, and then we'll probably pick up on this next week. I want to talk about what's called the kenosis. The kenosis literally means the emptying. 
okay? It, get, it, it, it comes from uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. I'm going to actually read Philippians uh, 2, verses 6 through 8. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took, to, uh, took the humble position of a slave. That, by the way, verse 7 is where the idea of the emptying comes from, okay? And what does that mean? Verse 8, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So that passage, particularly verse 7, um, is, is where we get the idea of Jesus emptying himself. Now, what does that mean? How, it, it basically, it is the question of how did Christ limit himself here on the earth? When he came in the flesh, how did he limit himself when he did that? In other words, it's the question of how in the world did God become man? How's that even possible? And from our human perspective, it's not. But the Bible clearly teaches it did, and and Christ in some way limited himself here on the earth in order to be a man. You know, I want you to think of something. You see this at one particular moment. uh, Glenn mentioned it last week. You see it in the Mount of Transfiguration. It's almost like, like Jesus had kind of like a blind pulled and for a moment, like he let the blind slip up. And, and, and what, what do, do P, Peter and James and John, they see a glimpse of that and they're like, whoa, okay, wow, this is who you really are? But even then, they didn't quite get it because what did they want to do? They wanted to set up like little booths and live up there with, with him and Moses and Elijah. And, and, and what's God say? No, you guys are getting this wrong. Listen to him. He's the one you have to listen to. Moses was the lawgiver. Elijah was considered kind of like the greatest prophet of the time of the prophets, kind of the doorway really into the time of the prophets. In other words, they both revealed God to man in, in different ways. One through, the, through the, the word, the other one through the time of the prophets. What's God saying? Those two things point to the him, to Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation. He's the declaration. He's not saying those aren't important anymore. He's saying he's the one you got to listen to. He's the one that really declares God. All right, we're out of time. We're going to begin next week by talking about the kenosis. What what does it mean that God in some way kind of laid aside his glory? We'll talk about that because, man, there's been all kind of like crazy errors that have been made in regard to that through the years. So that's where we'll pick up on next week. If you, you know, take the time this week, read that passage, get a good commentary, read it and, and work through it. You know, what, what does it mean? And, and you'll come better ready you know, for that discussion next week, all right? All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for these great fundamental truths. Father, we don't understand them all. They are, they are so difficult for us to understand but we accept them. We know that that's what your word teaches. We know that's what you demonstrated here on earth when you you performed miracles that John said were signs. You showed us who you are. And and, and so, Father, we're just so thankful for your sending of your son. We thank you for who you are uh, and that you've communicated to us through your word so we could try to to understand these things and believe these things. And so help us as we look into this to, to, to understand you as, as best that we can. And we just ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, everybody.